We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to A Taste of Romamu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romamu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Not sure how many of you saw this. This week there were videos streaming in from around Iran. Apparently, for many years, the government of Iran has painted American flags and Israeli flags on the streets, in the doorways, in mosques, and wherever people walk. So that when people walk, they had no choice but to stand on those flags, trampling them and desecrating them. But this week, across Iran, anti-government protesters in every section and every corner. Images were flooding in with their refusal to stand on those flags, an unwillingness to desecrate the symbol of America and Israeli sovereignty. And it appeared to me, those videos as they came through, and when I saw them, I was in Denver International Airport, awash in American flags everywhere. And as I pondered whether I should wear my flag or not, obviously I don't mean a flag, but I had accidentally put my kippah into my suitcase. It was probably somewhere under the plane already, and I was walking around in Denver airport wondering whether or not I felt safe, exposed as I was to anyone outing myself as a Jew. If you're wondering if I bought a kippah or a hat, rather, I I did. Here it is. It's a blue and white cap. It's my cap. I'm going to put it here because I have my kippah on. It got me thinking about flags and symbols and something I've never, and I've begun to talk about here at the Roman community, but It's not frequently that I speak about it, but I've been wrestling quite a bit over the last year or so, namely with, of course, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, Jewish identity, Jewish pride, Israel. And I'll be honest with all of you, Jewish identity is a subject I often try to avoid. Until recently, I almost never spoke from this pulpit about it. Why? Well, for starters, identity is itself a very complicated question. As most philosophers and mystics know, the more we look deeply at and analyze this self that we are, the less certain we are of what that self is. More precisely, we are, by definition, constructed selves. And of course, the Jewish part of Jewish identity is equally perplexing. It's also complicating and dizzying. What does Jewish mean to me, to you, to any of us? Is it something that we can sense or feel, put our finger on? Is it a religious belief, a shared history, a canon of books? Is it a peoplehood, a shared concerns, 
Is it conferred by birth or by ethnicity? What is that thing that makes us Jewish? Or an MOT, a member of the tribe? These complicated questions are questions that I have skirted to some degree, not only because they are complicating and complex and defy easy explanation, but also because here at Romamu we have a very wide and inclusive tent. And defining Jewishness narrowly would compromise that. I imagine that Moses, the great teacher and protagonist of our Torah, struggled with similar questions. Yeah, a little bit Moses in the house. What was it like to be Moses, weaned by a Jewish or Hebrew birth mother, adopted by the courageous daughter of Pharaoh? Moses is, of course, an assimilated Jew, a Hebrew slave with an Egyptian name who passes for Egyptian, shares in the power, but nonetheless ultimately leaves it all behind in one fatal moment, stepping aside from his privilege and his perch. The text tells us that Moses, after being weaned and then growing to be a man, and Moses went out to his brother, his brethren. Moses did what in the language of the philosopher David Hartman was identified with the mishpacha, with a family, with a tribe, with a kin group. He called it mishpachtology. That's cute, right? Mishpachtology. A sense of a deep tribal affiliation. He saw his family and he moved to action. Moses sees an Egyptian and a Hebrew slave fighting and he steps in. He writes a wrong. He makes just an injustice feeling his Hebrew brethren, the very next verse says that Moses sees two Jews or two Hebrews also having an argument and tries to step in again. It's going to go well this time. One of the Hebrew slaves says to him, who are you? You think you're a leader? No sooner has Moses made a deep kinship and family identification. But Moses is disappointed by that very family. And Moses flees. Disappointment and frustration never feel as bad or cut as deep as it does when our intimate relationships are the cause. So Moses runs away. If this is what it means to be a part of this family, I don't want to have any part of it. And Moses runs. He flees to Midian, where Moses is again the Savior. And then Moses comes to save the day and hides ensconced in a world of not with the Hebrews. Marries a woman named Zipporah, has kids, takes on a third father named Jethro, and he's just hanging out there in Midian while his family, his mishpacha, is back in the land of Egypt. I can relate to that Moses. I don't know if anybody here can relate to that Moses. If you've ever had an adverse childhood experience in a Hebrew institution, you can relate to that Moses. If you've ever walked into a synagogue and felt, oh, I so wanted this to be my mishpacha and left feeling, mm -mm, you're with Mo. 
I've had the experience of fear of the familial. Fear of the familial has us experiencing the most intimate relationships as dangerous. Something in us is constricted and restricted in the province of that family group, of that tribe, and we say, no thanks, I'd rather be a man, woman, person of the world than be narrowly tribal. Moses refused to participate in the story of his people out of a fear of that familial, and of course, not a small helping of healthy skepticism that tribes often become tribal, small-minded, and limiting. Maybe it was much safer to abandon himself, accommodating himself to those in power in Midian like he had done in Pharaoh's court. My own fear of the excesses of the tribe led me to make demands of my Jewish family that I would never have made from any other religious tradition. I ate up Buddhism as if it were the only religion in the world during my Buddhist phase, never wondering if it, it too had a patriarchal part. Was there misogyny in Buddhism? Were there hierarchies? Were men dominated in Buddhism? Mm -mm. I only loved Buddhism. There's nothing like Buddhism. Same thing with yoga and Hinduism and Taoism and Confucianism and of course the Bhagavad Gita is of course holy. Everything was holy but my religious tradition, my own family felt constricting. I was ashamed a little bit during my I don't like Judaism stage. Like Moses running from Judaism, I was like, no, Judaism is... I, These demands I made of Judaism to be perfect, to be bigger and better, to prove itself to me, were a bit like Moses saying, all the Jews that I met in Egypt have to be the kind that welcomed me. All of this has taken me a long time to admit to myself and to demand that we Jews not be treated as better than or worse than others, but simply as a family full of flaws and strengths. A family that is fabulous and also limited. That we are afforded the same basic existential rights as those that we have fought with and for. That we not be forced to justify our right to a homeland especially a safe haven where we might live our normal daily lives as proud inheritors of Jewish civilization, that we need not fear to raise our flawed flags whenever and wherever we please. I had that realization in my own way coming back to Jewish life, but I didn't have what Moses had. No, Moses had a theophany at a burning bush. In the song that Chazan Basi began with, Moses in Midian, running away from the family that is flawed, comes upon a bush that he can't keep his eyes off of and turns to see what it is. And there he hears God saying, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, Hineni, here I am. Take off your shoes, Moses. 
And what then ensues in the conversation between Moses and God, where God teaches Moses a lesson, is that Moses says to God, you have the wrong people. You see, the children of Israel, they're not worthy of redemption. They can't hear. And besides that, you already chose a prophet that also is unworthy of redeeming. Moses and God get into a dialogue of worthiness. And God says something profoundly important to Moses that changes the course of his life and mine. God says to Moses, you are worthy of redemption, even with your flaws. You, Moses, are worthy of redemption even though you cannot speak. You will go and lead an unworthy people, unworthy of redemption, but really worthy of redemption because every people is worthy of redemption. Each and every people, God says to Moses, is worthy of the intrinsic right to be free with their flaws with their shadow, with the things about them that are ugly and the warts and all, each and every human being. Moses, no different. The Jewish people, no different. It was a year ago that I sat in a room with liberal rabbis in a closed-door meeting to meet two leaders of the Women's March, Tamika Mallory and Linda Sarsour. We were trying to bridge the great divide that had opened up around the anti-Semitism of the Women's March. It had all come undone when Tamika Mallory had tweeted a picture of herself with Minister Louis Farrakhan and the acronym G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, underneath it. Most, if not all of you here, know that Minister Farrakhan is a vile and rabid anti-Semite who's called Jews vermin, fomented conspiracy theories about Jewish power, spread the idea that the Jews were behind the slave trade, and to say nothing of his hatred of gays and his misogyny. This meeting was the second meeting that I had attended, because at the first meeting, the rabbis were asked why the Jewish community was not protecting those who were angry with Tamika Mallory's support for Minister Farrakhan. I was at the center of the storm at that meeting. As I explained how crazy it was to imagine Jews coming to the defense of someone who wouldn't repudiate a known Jew hater. That comment was met with, no one cares about him. He's that crazy Uncle Farrakhan. He doesn't have an impact on the Jewish world or any kids. We sat with our mouths wide open in shock as one after another of the leaders of the Women's March said to us, oh, pay him no mind. He goes on for three, four hours. Nobody ever pays attention to him. No one cares about him. At the end of the second meeting, I insisted once again on hearing an explanation from Tamika Mallory. Why, I asked, can't you just say, I'm sorry, I should never have stood with that man. He is an anti-Semite. And what would happen next is something that will be indelibly etched on my soul for the rest of my life. It was so upsetting to me that I can still feel it in my body as I speak to you right now. A prominent, extremely left-leaning rabbinic colleague stood up before Tamika 
And before she had had even a chance to respond to me, my colleague said out loud in front of everyone, David Ingber, you are embarrassing all of us. You have gone too far. We are here tonight to make alliances, she said, not demanding apologies. What happened at that moment? What was that moment? I can't say for sure, but it's not unlikely that on some very deep level, Jews who demand an acknowledgement of our right to just simply exist without fear or favor make some people, including other Jews, really queasy. Perhaps at that moment my colleague was doing what we Jews have done for centuries, what Moses might have been doing when he ran away, contorting and accommodating ourselves to fit into whatever roles keep us safest amidst our often hostile neighbors. What Jewish history has taught us and has taught us in a bloody way is that this doesn't work. That this doesn't work. Safety for Jews and others comes in respecting our differences what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has called the dignity of difference. Not by self-abnegation or self-erasure. We are flawed. We are flawed. Yes, we are. No doubt about it. So are our flags flawed. But we deserve to raise those flags even if we are not defined by them. They hold out an aspirational ideal for whom we are to be. We are flawed, but also inherently worthy of a home, just like everyone else. We say, and God said to Moses, raise your fabulously flawed flag. We are not to blame for anti-Zionism. We are not to blame for anti-Semitism. We are the victims of irrational hatred that defies all attempts to understand it, to fix it, to finally figure it out. The pathology has no known cure, and it is insidious and infectious. And of course, it has now infected those that say that we somehow as Jews of all the people on earth don't deserve our own homeland. That we of all peoples on the earth are ethno-colonialists. That we who have fled country after unhospitable country, who have suffered at the hands of foes and friends alike, are not entitled to a state that has as its first priority the safety of Jews everywhere. When people criticize Zionism, they mean Jews. You're talking anti-Semitism, said the late great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at a dinner party shortly before his death in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
Rabbis Amiel Hirsch and Joshua Davidson wrote an op-ed in the Times yesterday where they said, to describe Zionism as racism, to deny Israel's most basic right to exist is anti-Semitic in effect, if not in intent. Why is Israel the only country in the world whose right to exist is not just questioned, but actively campaigned against? Israel's enemies protest that they are simply anti-Zionist, not anti-Semitic, yet their view of justice requires eliminating the one and only Jewish state. In the wake of the recent anti-Semitic attacks, a congregant in this community wrote to me and asked me if I wouldn't mind if he would pay for an American flag and an Israeli flag to be placed in our sanctuary and in our buildings. I have to admit, I can't believe it's confessional to admit this, but I loved the idea. Loved it. I grew up in a synagogue where there was an Israeli flag and an American flag. I grew up in a school where we sang the national anthem and then sang the Hatikva. Every gathering. All I wanted to do was put up a flag. And in this day and age, in the aftermath of horrific acts of hate against fellow Jews, I wanted to be proud. I wanted to affirm my Jewish identity. I wanted to say out loud, this flag represents my flawed self. This flag represents 2,000 years of longing. A place where we are allowed to be Jewish and human proudly both. This flag is a symbol of an unwillingness to be the victim of history any longer, to be the powerless, exilic Jew, currying favor from those in power in order to be spared the spasms and paroxysms of pogrom after pogrom at the hands of Cossacks and common folk wanted to just say it's okay to just be proud and say it out loud. To walk through the Denver International Airport not needing to hide my kippah. The flag represents our return to history, our return to the family of nations. And it's just a flag, but it means so much. The blue and the white, like these tzitziot that we wear, reminding us of heaven and earth and the blue sapphire beneath the throne of glory. The blue and the white, zetseva sheli, blue and white, kachol velavan. A blue and white flag, not unlike the blue and white flag that proudly flies 50 yards east of this church on the Greek Orthodox church that we pass every day with one exception that in the middle is just a lonely star of David. And I immediately thought, I want to put this up, just a flag, just a kippah, flawed, fabulous, familial. Come on, Moses, go back. They're not perfect, they're just your family. The flag isn't perfect, it's just a symbol of 
an aspirational ideal like the Stars and Stripes, which is so far from the ideal, but a hope and a prayer. In her book, my friend and Romu member Barry Weiss writes about the Liberty Bell, a bell that was erected by a generation of Americans who owned slaves and which only became known as the Liberty Bell when righteous abolitionists claimed it and its biblical origins and said that the proclamation on that bell proclaimed liberty in the land belonged to them. If one wears a kippah, does it mean that we accept and honor every piece of Jewish wisdom? If one wears a kippah, will there be some Jews to the left and to the right that think you've gone too far? If we have a Jewish expression known as an Israeli flag hanging in our sanctuary, does it mean that we can't criticize the government of Israel's policies and protest injustice? Does it? Or does it say something more profound? That like that Liberty Bell, which only held within it an injunction and an aspiration, we too are proud just to be, but hope to be more. Flawed flags, all of us. I'm sorry that my young friends left the sanctuary during this once in every 12 year sermon that I give. I'm sorry that their first experience and taste of the Roman community is a rabbi standing up, proclaiming that it's okay to be proudly Jewish and to wear a kippah and to hang a flag. I'm sorry for them if they think that in the five minutes of listening to me it meant that I'm not free of voice and of heart to be able to be critical of occupation, of injustice, and of many of the hopes and dreams that we hold as Jews not yet having been fulfilled in that homeland that we hold dear. I'm sorry their notion of what it means to welcome means to silence my voice and my right to say Am Yisrael Chai even with its flaws even with its failures. I spoke with a young man named Yonatan Katz who lives in Uganda. He is the administrator of a small community that meets every Shabbat in Uganda in the capital. And he found Romamu online. <laughs> and so he reached out to me. He wanted to know about this interesting synagogue that he'd watched, where people will sing and dance and generally feel like they love one another and so unique. And as he stood, as he sat there in the Zoom screen, his 27-year-old face shining bright and so full of life. Couldn't help but notice his yarmulke. It was blue and white with an Israeli flag. And I said to him, Yonatan, what's it like to wear that yarmulke in Uganda? He said, it's great. I go everywhere with it, he says. Nobody bothers me. They are all curious. They say, what's that kippah all about? 
And so I describe it to him. I don't know if you've heard the news, but in places like Iran, there are protesters who believe in democracy who are refusing to step on the American and Israeli flag. Next week, just to give you a heads up, we will proudly buy those flags. And in so doing, this symbol of our people's eternal hope and prayer that they would one day return to the land, to its culture, to its civilization, to its thick Jewish identity. Flawed as it is, incomplete as it is. A trigger for some, clearly, but for many of us, an abiding trust that we have taken on. This flag, like the Greek flag that flies 50 feet, 50 yards from this sanctuary, will also fly in Romamu. I hope that it will begin a conversation. I hope that it will begin an intense introspection about what it means, what it doesn't mean, what it can be, what it can't be. I remember sitting in the Denver International Airport thinking to myself, I've just come back from a conference of rabbis and Israel and anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism was not mentioned once. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if that's what many people felt being in this community for 12 years. That the blue and white elephant in the room in this beautiful, Hasidic, loving community was, what about what it feels like when I ask you if you're safe to be a Jew? I know that on that day, a year ago, I did not feel safe in that room. As my colleague shamed me, and as none came to my defense, I felt as if my very existence and the demand that I be treated with dignity and safety was somehow at a level and standard that no one else had to abide by. There is a Midrash, and I'll finish with this, there is a Midrash that says that when we Jews when we spiritual yearners walk in the world, make sure it says that you are a flag, that you are a flag for what it is that Judaism can and should be. So, says the Midrash, when someone sees you acting kindly, they say, you know, I want my son, daughter, child to learn Torah because look at this kindness. Because when you act lovingly, they'll say, look, I want my son, daughter, child to be involved in Yiddishkeit, in the Jewish values, because look who they become. Each and every one of us is an aspiration and a flag. We walk in the world and people say, look at them. Look at who they are. 
In the words of Rabbi Heschel, whose Yortzeit also was this, was this week and who prayed with his feet as he held the arm of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. My word, my hands, the wonder in my eyes, take me source, God, for service to you and use me for your ends. Place me in alien railroad depots like a greeting statue for forlorn guests with joy and throat filled with words with a bright face and sunny hands. Send me to exiled brothers, prisoners in jail. Send me with good news and consolation to mourners, with help to the poor, with rescue for the sick. Take me for a friend. Take me for a slave. I dedicate tonight's sermon to the memory of Yitzhak ben Avraham. <laughs> 